You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. What makes for successful Christian living? It's an important question because in some way, the story of the church in Corinth is the story of a church that was seduced by alternate visions of Christian living. On the one hand, you have the super apostles, those who are bold, those who are powerful, those who are influential in the ways of the world, in the eyes of the world. And on the other hand, you have Paul, who seems weak and vulnerable and anxious, who has horrific things happen to him, who is not wise in rhetoric. And so it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that the church in Corinth is seduced. Because let's be honest, if you had to put money on who you think will have the most impact for the kingdom of God, wouldn't it be those who are bold and powerful? Wouldn't it be the visionaries? Wouldn't it be the great leaders? Wouldn't it be those who are seen as influential? And it made me wonder, as we think about our text today, what would we say to that question? How would we answer the question, what makes a successful Christian living? In fact, I thought it would be actually a good idea for us to write some things down. So go grab a piece of paper or a pen, pause things for 30 seconds, come back. I'm going to write some things down. I want us to see how we would answer that question, what makes for successful Christian living? Go. Well, how'd you go? I wonder what you wrote down. And we'll get an opportunity to share what we wrote down in our phones or on a piece of paper uh, when we get into discussion groups, into breakout rooms. But I wonder if it was anything like what I wrote down. I wrote things down like bold in prayer, loving your enemies, knowledge of the scriptures filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are good things. And and you can add to that list, can't you? Like uh, successful Christian living is, is trusting in God always, rejoicing in the Lord, praying about everything, giving thanks always. And yet sometimes when I look at lists like this, I look at my own life and start to get depressed pretty quickly because I know that my life is not always like that, that I'm not always giving thanks. I'm not always praying. I don't always feel full of the Spirit. I don't always appear knowledgeable or even am knowledgeable. So what do you do? And as I was, as I was reading the text before us today, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, There are a couple of things that really stood out to me about how Paul lives his life that I think are going to be helpful for us as we make all of life all about Jesus. And there are two things that I don't think anyone would have as the first things they think about as successful Christian living. The first is weakness. Paul is weak. And the second is repentance. Paul speaks a lot about repentance. And these things might be like, I sort of get it, but 
also like that is strange weakness how can weakness be a part of successful christian living don't i want to be powerful don't i want to be full of the spirit but even just consider paul in the the same book as the one we're reading in uh chapter 12 he he says this he's talking about his thorn in the flesh and god god said to paul my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul says, Therefore, I will gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside. So I take pleasure in my weakness. Paul takes delight in his vulnerabilities. And in the back of my mind, I know how absurd that is. I have uh, just the, the, the line from uh, Friedrich Nietzsche about evil and power. He says, what is evil, whatever springs from weakness. And I think in some ways we've imbibed that, right? We don't want to be weak. We don't want to be vulnerable. And yet Paul says, no, 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 Christian, that is the source of my power. It leads me to God. And so as we read the text today, keep that in mind, that there are these aspects of Christian living that are going to be strange and different and yet vital to making all of life all about Jesus, as Paul does constantly. So let's jump in. Let's find out how this plays out. How can weakness be for us? How can repentance be a part of Christian life? Well, Paul starts out asking the Corinthians to open their hearts, to expand their hearts. He says in verse 2, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. And I don't say this to condemn you, since I have already said that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together, God's boys for life. He's not, he's not referencing bad boys. He's literally saying, hey, we're united in the life and death of Jesus. We've died together in Jesus and we have life together in Jesus. And it's helpful just being reminded of the context that Paul is speaking from. Now, we know that uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, seems more like an emotional Facebook rant at times. The kind of thing written at 3 a.m. rather than the cool, reasonable logic of something like Romans or even 1 Corinthians. But we know why. Paul has written a painful letter to the church in Corinth and he is eagerly awaiting their response. We read earlier on, I think in chapter 2, that Paul had made his way to Troas and he found significant gospel opportunities there. But instead of being excited by what God was doing, his mind was in Corinth. He'd sent Titus to Corinth with the letter and he was awaiting their response. And he was so waylaid, so preoccupied, so consumed by what was happening in Corinth that he left Troas, even though there was opportunities there, because Titus wasn't there. He's like, I have to find Titus. I have to find what is going on in Corinth. And so we pick it up in verse 5. Paul leaves Troas and goes to Macedonia and he writes, In fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside and fears within. And maybe you don't look at this as successful Christian living, as Paul making all of life all about Jesus, but I actually think this is 
a, a realistic depiction of what life in Christ looks like. Maybe not all the time. There are going to be celebrations and successes and victories and triumphs, but the Christian road is not going to be smooth always. There will be peaks and there will be valleys. But I actually think Paul reveals something to us in his weakness. We can think of those classic verses like rejoice always or you know, pr- don't be anxious about anything but pray. But I actually think that that's what Paul's doing. That praying, uh, pray, like don't be anxious about anything, don't worry about anything, but rather pray to the Lord and he will give you the peace of God. I think that's what Paul is doing here. Because it doesn't mean that we'll be detached from reality, not caring about anything. What Paul is doing is caring very, very, very much. He loves the church in Corinth. And that's the source of his anxieties and fears. But rather than detach from the world around him, rather than detach from love, rather than detach from caring for the church, he's saying, I'm feeling all of this. And as I tussle with this, as I wrestle with this, as my fears are provoked, as my anxieties arise, I'm bringing them to God. I'm taking them to Him. As I struggle day by day, week by week, with these fears that I have for the church in Corinth, these brothers and sisters that I love, I'm taking them to the Lord. You know, I, I thank God that we have an example like Paul in this so that we don't get trapped or tricked into thinking that this is what second-rate Christians do. That you know, the real first-rate Christians amongst us, well, they have no fear, no anxiety, no worries, nothing. It's only the second-rate ones do. But Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He is a Christian par excellence. And yet he still wrestles. He's still weak. He's still vulnerable. You know, it, it makes me think uh, of an experience that happened when I was 18 that um, I sat down with a mentor of mine and he said, uh, he gave me some great advice. He said, you know, Jimmy, uh, what would be great for your discipleship is to find someone in history who you admire, who encourages you and read everything that you can they've ever written as much as you can about them. And, and I chose Charles Spurgeon. Uh, and you might have heard of the Spurge before because he is so endlessly quotable. Uh, he has written a heap. I've got a book at home of his collected works and uh, you could kill someone with it. Like it is a huge, huge book. And in some ways I chose Spurgeon because I was seduced in the same way that the church in Corinth was. Spurgeon was uh, the first mega church pastor. He, he uh, at a very young age, had a huge congregation. His sermons have stood the test of time, enormously influential, bold. But I think the thing that has stood out to me most about Spurgeon is his weakness. I've forgotten a lot of his sermons. I've forgotten a lot of what I've read about him. And yet, it's his weakness that has stood out to me. When Spurgeon was 22, uh, he was preaching in a church to 7,000 people when a prankster at one of his services called out, fire, fire. And there was a panic. There was a stampede out of the doors. And uh, an incredible amount of people were hurt. Seven people died. 28 people were severely injured. And everyone blamed Spurgeon for packing the churches because no one had done that before. 
So with the newspapers hounding him, Spurgeon fell into a deep depression, a deep state of unease with the world. His wife, Susanna, commenting of that time, said, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter on her throne. We sometimes feared he would never preach again. And Spurgeon, commenting on his own life some years after the fact, said, I suppose that some brethren never have much elevation or depression. I could almost wish to share their peaceful life. For I am much tossed up and down, and although my joy is greater than most men, my depression of spirit is such as few can have an idea of. Zach Aswine wrote uh, an incredible book about this experience called Spurgeon's Sorrows. It's a book of um, Spurgeon's openness about his depression and his spiritual state and uh, the effect that that incident had on him. And he he writes this, and I think it's uh, incredibly powerful, about that that time, that season, about two weeks later uh, when Spurgeon went back to the church for the first time. He writes this, On a November morning, in weakness, Charles did what some of us are not yet able to do in our anxiety and grief. He read the Bible. Perhaps it will comfort you to learn that for a while the very sight of the Bible made Charles cry. But what he read had such a power of comfort upon his distressed spirit. Being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. It's Philippians 2, verse 8 to 9. S1 writes, The same heavenly Father who picks his Son up out of the muck, the misery and the mistreatment, can do the same for us. Yes. That is successful Christian living. Weakness, vulnerability, anxiety lead us to God. They reveal our poverty of power. That we actually can't do all the things that we think we can do, but rather need to depend on the Lord. Weakness is not a virtue in of itself, but in that it is the source of our power because it leads us to who is truly powerful. God. Not us, not me, not Spurgeon, not anyone, but God. God is powerful and weakness brings us to him. That is successful Christian living. That's why weakness is central. If we can keep on reading, we find some of the most comforting words in all Scripture. In fact, I think the first two words of verse 6 are some of the most comforting words in all the Bible, uh, especially if you read how they're used in, in Scripture. But God, but God, God has intervened. God has done something. In Paul's weakness, God has intervened exactly like we want him to, exactly like we hope him to. But God, who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the arrival of Titus. You can almost hear, you can almost feel Paul's relief. He's been going from town to town, waiting for Titus, anxious about Titus, fearful about Titus. But now Titus has arrived. Titus is here. Titus has come and he's brought news about Corinth. God has intervened, but God, Titus has come. 
You can feel the release in Paul's breath. And Titus brings good news. He brings good news about the church in Corinth. It says, uh, going on in verse 7, God who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his arrival, but also told us about your deep longing, about the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. Paul is filled with joy at the experience of the church in Corinth. They had repented. They were filled with zeal and longing for Paul. He had comforted Titus. And he, he, he regrets it for a moment that I, I had to write such a harsh letter, a rebuking letter, a painful letter. But it led you to repentance. I wonder how many of you wrote down repentance as a central part of the Christian life. Paul seems to think so. He says these incredible words in verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. The sorrow we feel at harsh words, at our sin being pointed out, will either bring us to life or to death. Matthews Green, a New Testament scholar, writes, Repentance is the doorway to the spiritual life, the only way to begin. It is also the path itself and the only way to continue. Anything else is foolishness and self-delusion. Only repentance is both brute, honest enough and joyous enough to bring us all the way home. What it's saying is that repentance is a sweet sadness. Yes, it is sadness because our sin, our evil, our wicked ways are pointed out, but it is joyous. It is sweet because those same evil, that same sin leads us to God. And Paul is ecstatic because even in their sorrow, they're being led to God. They're being led to the Lord. But I think it's interesting that he makes this incredible uh, contrast between worldly grief on the one hand and godly grief. Worldly sadness, godly sadness. And in some ways you might ask the question, well, how are they actually that different? Sadness is sadness. I feel sad. I eat ice cream. I don't know what you're talking about, Paul. But I actually think these two are worlds apart. I want to unpack that a little bit. I think there are four ways in particular that worldly sadness and godly sadness are different from one another. Firstly, Worldly sadness is only ever horizontal, but godly sadness is vertical. You know, my, my son Nate is eight months old now, and, and one of his favorite things to do in the world is to sit in his high chair as he eats some food or plays with some toys. And what he started to do is he takes those toys and then he, uh, he gets his hand and he puts it outside of the high chair and he looks at me and then he drops it and then he laughs. And I look at him and I say, Nathan James Young, you are born in sin and must repent of your evil ways. Well, I, I don't actually say that, but maybe I, maybe I should start doing that. <laughs> but what we have all experienced or seen or witnessed 
is when kids often get into trouble, they're sad about getting found out. They're not sad about what they've done. They're not sad about how it's impacted others. Often they're just sad that they got caught, they're busted, they've been found out, and yet we do the same thing. And Paul is saying, hey, watch out for that worldly grief, that worldly grief that only cares about consequences, doesn't care about who has been harmed, either horizontally or vertically. Worldly grief only cares about those around us. Godly grief cares about the fact that we have sinned to God, that the first person we have offended, the first person we have harmed in our sinful endeavours is not each other but God, and therefore the first person we must repent to is God. And that leads to the second thing. Worldly grief is emotion alone. But godly grief, godly sorrow has a spiritual grief. It's the tricky thing. Both godly grief and worldly grief have emotion attached to them. Both will have tears from time to time. Both will have the snotty nose. But worldly grief only has emotion. And therefore, it is not long-lasting. I'm sure you've been in the same state. You've been caught out. You've been found in your sin. Some things happen that you've been uh, confronted and you feel uh, just, just sad. You feel depressed. You feel low. But what happens next? You know, there's, I've been in a hundred conversations with people like, I am never drinking again. I'm never looking at porn again. I'm never lying again. Whatever it is that you've been found out with, I'm, just, I'm never going to do that again. But the thing is, as soon as the emotion goes, that sad emotion, that emotion of being found out, so too does the desire to change. Godly sorrow is not like that because it is grounded, because its foundation is I have harmed God. I have offended God. I have to change. And so a really helpful question to ask yourself is, what is the source of my sadness? When I'm confronted by my sin, why does that make me upset? Am I upset because I got found out and maybe I lost a relationship? Maybe I lost a position at work? Maybe I lost something that I value? Or is it that I have harmed God, that I've offended God? Ask yourself the question, what is the source of my sadness? The third part that differentiates worldly sadness and godly sadness Worldly sadness is passive, but godly sadness is active. Worldly sadness wants to train sin. Godly sadness wants to kill sin. Let me, let me, let me tell a story. Uh, a couple of years back now, that the most famous Las Vegas show was Siegfried and Roy. And what they had, they had these incredible tigers that they trained and they did a magic show. It's just, it's just insane. And uh, one of the tigers they had was called Manticore. Like it, it just, it sounds like you could not make this up, but you can Google it. I mean, not right now, please. Uh, I mean, you can if you want. I won't find out. But uh, just, just insane, right? And you watch one of these shows, and the tigers can just do insane things. Like, you know, Roy says sit, and the tiger sits. Roy says jump, and the tiger jumps. And I'm like, I want to get me one of these tigers, right? It can sit and jump, and what more do you need a tiger to do? But there was this moment where Roy and Siegfried were doing this show and uh, Roy was leading the tiger around and it hit him on the nose for whatever reason, something that he'd done a hundred times again, and the tiger just lost it, just 
went mental, mauled Roy, took him off stage. Roy almost died. Uh, he had to have uh, brain surgery. Uh, he had to retire from show business. And the crazy thing is that about 10 years later, he was interviewed by a, a TV program and he commented, I believe that he was distressed. He was trying to help me, not hurt me. And I just look at that and go, are you an idiot? Tigers don't help people. Tigers eat people. They are apex predators. That is their job. You put them in their environment. They are the biggest, baddest king of the jungle. right? If the tiger is not eating you, it's trying to think about how it will eat you. What are you doing? And yet so many of us are the same. Well, you know, it it didn't really want to hurt me. It it just, it was trying to help me. No, no, no. Kill your sin. Don't treat it like a tiger cub. Don't treat it like something that needs to be trained. Well, you know, if I just taught it to say, sit better, if I just trained it harder, then maybe it'll work out for me. No, you kill the sin. Right? Tigers are not tame and our sin is not tame either. Be active in your fight against sin. Don't just go, well, you know, things happen. God will forgive me. God does forgive you. But he also says, kill your sin. Like, take earnestly the fact that Paul says that worldly grief leads to death because sin hardens our hearts and it hardens them against God. So don't be afraid. Don't be don't be shocked one day when we come before the Lord and we have not been active in our fight against sin and Jesus says, I never knew you. Right? The last thing that worldly grief does, that godly grief does not, is that worldly sadness shifts responsibility. It shifts blame, whereas godly responsibility takes responsibility. Godly grief takes responsibility. I don't know if you've uh, watched athletes ever give an apology. Um, it's just, it's incredible watching them because they never actually take responsibility. You know, they say this, this classic line, well, you know, I'm sorry if you were hurt. I'm sorry if you were harmed. I'm sorry if you were offended by what I said. That's not an apology. That's actually shifting the blame onto the other person. That's collateral damage. Saying, well, you know, I don't actually think what I did was wrong, but you were offended and therefore you are wrong. So I'm sorry if something happened to you. That is not what godly grief leads to. That is not godly repentance. If you want an idea of what godly repentance looks like, you only have to look at Psalm 32. All right, let me just read this out for us. It's literally titled, The Joy of Forgiveness. And David writes, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with sin, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. But then, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What David is saying, you take ownership of your sin. You do not cover your iniquity before the Lord and he will forgive you. you know, in our prayer lives, don't, like we, should, we don't, can't be saying, well, God, I'm sorry if you're offended by that. That's just tough bickies. 
Right? We have to be like David and say, God, I have offended you, but I do not cover my iniquities before you. If you want to pray a dangerous prayer, here's a, here's a prayer that I've been praying lately. God, expose me. Uncover my iniquities so that they would lead me to you in repentance so that I can experience life and not death. That's a dangerous prayer. So much of our lives is spent covering up rather than, un- uh, rather than exposing ourselves. But maybe exposing, maybe taking responsibility actually leads to life. And I think that's what we see in the rest of the passage, right? What we see is Paul saying similar things. So now that they've repented, now that they've expressed their joy, now that they've come to Paul, what does he write in verse 11? For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving, this godly grief has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wronged, but that in order that your devotion to us might be made plain in the sight of God. For this reason we have been comforted. In addition to our own comfort, we rejoiced even more over the joy that Titus had, because his spirit was refreshed by all of you. For if I have made any boast to him about you, I have not been disappointed. But as I have spoken everything to you in truth, so our boasting to Titus has also turned out to be truth. And his affection toward you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all and how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that I have complete confidence in you. Just think about the last couple of chapters, the anxiety, the fear that Paul has had about the church in Corinth and just... Look at those words. Paul is glad that this happened. He rejoices that this happened. He's comforted this has happened because they've repented. Repentance has refreshed Paul. Repentance from the church in Corinth has refreshed Titus. Repentance from the church in Corinth has refreshed the church in Corinth. Paul was fearing death, but instead godly sorrow has led to life. Repentance without fear repentance without regret and so as we bring this to a close i wonder what your relationship to these aspects of christian living are what's your relationship with weakness like are you like the super apostles and get uh, encouraged or seduced by the powerful the strong the bold the influential Maybe you need to spend some time reflecting on the life of Paul, someone who is weak in order to show the power of God. What about repentance? What's your relationship with repentance like? Are you like David? God, I did not cover my iniquity. Or are you covering something up at the moment? Friends, let me encourage you. There is power to be found in weakness and there is life to be found in repentance. We want that for you. We want this to be a church that experiences life, but sometimes we need to leave some things behind. So I'm going to pray for us right now that we would find strength in our weakness, that we would find life in our repentance. And I encourage you to join me in that prayer. God, we just thank you for this word. We thank you for the life of Paul and the example that he is to us, not just in being bold, not just being powerful, not just influential, but rather in his weakness he turns to you.
God, show up our power as weakness. Show up our dependencies as inadequate so that we will be led to you. For those of us who are feeling strong at the moment, show us the ways that we are weak. Show us the ways that we need to depend upon you. God, for those of us who are covering up our sin, expose us. Show us as who we really are. Let us not be shocked when we come before you, but uncover us so that we might experience the life that Paul talks about, that we might be refreshed. God, make us a church in your image. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.